Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Ask if you would stand, please, for the reading of the word. Reading out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning... That's just a phrase right there, in the beginning. That's literally what Genesis means. Genesis is a phrase or a word that encompasses the term in the beginning. God created heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. The darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, and it was basically the first day. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, upon our ears, our hearts, our minds, to receive and to apply in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The song you just heard played was um, Ancient Words. You'll hear that uh, a little bit later. Um, title of the conversation today is part of a series that we began last week entitled Origin Story. And uh, if you have notes there, you can modify them slightly because the phrase is, the title is The Power of Words. I would want to change that to say The Power of The Word. So not The Power of Words as much as The Power of The Word, but they're both encompassed in our conversation here um, today. We talked last week about origin stories, how much they define a character, um, how much they uh, shape our understanding of who they are. Uh, in the same way, we as individuals need to have an origin story, and in fact, we do have one that we find within Scripture. And the purpose of an origin story for our sake here is to have a, a way that we view not only ourselves but the world around us. This shapes a word called our worldview. And your worldview is what you use to see and understand and experience and then respond to the world around you. And so your worldview is what helps you to make sense of not just the world, but yourself and every aspect of who you are. In fact, as one writer put it, uh, in fact, every single decision that you make, you make hundreds of them, if not thousands of decisions every single day, and every one of those flows through your worldview. The choices you make are a result of what you believe as described by your worldview. And we've talked about the fact that Barna and other researchers have said that only 6% of of those who are claiming to be Christians in this country have a biblical worldview. Only 6%. And so there's a lot of those that are identifying as Christian, and this is what you'll see on the media and everything else at times, but they don't have a biblical worldview, and because they don't have that, they will spout or say or address things that um, really are not rooted in biblical Christianity. Uh, and so what we're striving to do in this conversation over the next series of months is to lay a foundation of understanding uh, for biblical truth in our lives and in our service in our church here today. There's a philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre. He's a French philosopher. A lot of others have talked about the, the essential issue of philosophy, that there is something 
instead of nothing. Why? Everything else in our life kind of flows from that one question. If everything around us, including ourselves, is the result of random, meaningless occurrences, apart from the work of a creating God, then it says something about who I am and where I and the whole universe are going. If that is the case, then the only dignity or honor we would bestow upon men is pure sentimentality because we don't have any more significance than an amoeba. There's no greater law in the universe than survival of the fittest. About 100 years ago, there was a German philosopher. His name was Arthur Schopenhauer. And by habit, he usually kind of dressed like a vagrant and looked pretty, uh, pretty dodgy. And so one day, he was sitting on a park bench in Berlin, and he was deep in thought about this whole idea of who we are and the universe and all that's out there. And his appearance made a policeman suspicious. And so the policeman asked the philosopher, went over and says, who are you? Schopenhauer allegedly answered, I would to God I knew. We're trying to figure out who we are and where we are in this world. And this conversation today is intended to address that in part. We begin in the beginning. Um, A number of the books in the Bible actually use the first phrase uh, of the book to be the title of the book. Others are titled by who wrote them like the Gospels and things of this nature. So Genesis, in the beginning, that is the title of the book. And you've got nothing in existence, nothing's around, and suddenly God decides to create the heavens and the earth. And we talk about the form and void, nothing's there. And here's the phrase I want to draw to your attention. I'm going to draw your attention to three, three chapters, two in Genesis, one in the book of John in the New Testament, and the first five verses of each of those chapters. And then I'm going to throw another one in just for fun, okay? But there are three, five verses, a total of 15, um, in these three chapters I want to draw your attention to. The first one being this in Genesis 1 um, through 5. And particularly I want to draw your attention to this. And God said, let there be light. And then there was light. You can read the rest of the passage how that goes. Are you picking up on what's happening here? The creative emphasis of what is taking place or, or is occurring in this moment of time is not through a lot of effort or work or magical things. The key of this is that God said. In other words, he just said, let there be light. He used words, then there's a power behind words, that, that the words itself coming from who they are, and, and it can matter who those words come from to the degree they impact us. A person of great authority's words can have a meaning more to us than someone of a lesser authority. And so he speaks with this authority, and suddenly there's light. Someone's mentioned recently, and it's accurate enough, that that, uh, um, later the sun and the moon, the stars, all that are created. So where's this light coming from? Well, God evidently is the light that fuses the entire universe. We can talk physics, but this is not a physics book, but we can talk about the Big Bang and the idea that, that our scientists have shown that somewhere creation started from a single moment of time and that the universe is expanding. And so there was some moment of time, something happened, and, and this lines up directly with Genesis. But again, Genesis is not, nor is the Bible, a scientific book as such. It's always nice when you kind of see those moments kind of come along, isn't it? And so at this moment... There's, there's an occurrence that happens that, it, that, that expands and grows the universe, and God uses it strictly by 
his words. Now, a typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our galaxy alone has 200 billion stars. And um, the closest galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy. I think there's something like, like 12 million trillion 12 million trillion miles away. And there are like billions upon billions upon trillions of galaxies. And so if, if you get an understanding of the, of the large expanse of what God has created from the moment that he said, let there be light, this is what expands and this is what takes place. So there's this creative power in the simple word of God. We know that words can have influence. In fact, just out of curiosity, just a little experiment for the moment here a bit. Um, I'm not going to have you do this one thing. We did have a moment here years, years, years back. I don't recall when, when I asked people to turn to one another randomly, uh, whoever they were, and, and say that they loved them. Well, it happened to be that two people were here, I don't know if it was for the first time, but they didn't know each other and they were single. And they happened to be next to each other, turned to each other, had to say that. And they're now married. They've got a five-year-old, I think, or so like that. They're the church. So, so I, I, this, is, this is dangerous stuff here, okay? And so I want to be careful with what I do here today. So I'm not going to have you turn to anybody because who knows what could happen with that, all right? But I want you to just verbalize out loud. Just say the word, um, I love you. Okay. Kind of dwell on that for a bit. Now I want you to use the phrase and say, I hate you. A little different feeling behind that. It's a little more reluctant to say that. You're a little quicker to say the first. There's a power to words. Language shapes so much of what we do and who we are. God intended language to be something that would um, communicate to us, connect us, and it's through language and through words that he speaks to us. He uses it creatively. But not all language has been used creatively. In fact, it was not long after um, God's creation by the power of his word that something else took place. And to this, I'm going to jump out of our five um, uh, scriptures, these 15, and this is the insert here I'm giving you. It's in Genesis chapter 2. And we can read it, can't we? No, but if you have a Bible, you could. Just a thought. Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice the language here. Pay attention. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You shall surely die. So first of all, let's, let's lay out one thing. There's this garden. There's this, 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 we can call it a euphemism, an allegory. We can call it the reality of what it was. There's this beautiful thing where all of man's needs are met. The lion lays down with the lamb. There's no violence. There's no death. It is, it, is, it is as close to, let's use the word utopia, okay, as you could have. And God puts only one guideline in play. Now, at this point in time, Adam's alive and been made. Even Eve has not been. And he says that you're able to eat of, of 
of how many trees in the garden, can you remember the phrase, of how many trees in the garden could they eat of? All of them, every tree, every tree. In this whole wide, huge garden in, in the world, you can eat of all of them. How many trees were restricted? Only one tree was restricted. And of that one tree, it said that it's the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day you eat of it, notice the phraseology in the language, that you eat of it, you will die. So there's the utopian setting. There's this, all the access of whatever we want, and then there's one thing we're not to touch. And we can sit here and say, what was the idea behind that? I mean, why do that? Why, why tempt? Why play games? Why, God, what are you doing with that? Without that tree, man has no free will. Without the option of rebellion, there is no true loyalty or commitment. If God had not placed that tree there, we would be robots, automatons, with no options whatsoever. He did that not to tempt and play with us, but to allow for that factor within our relation, within our lives, so that we could have a true relationship with God. Now, keep that in the back of your brain here for a little bit, because here's what happens next then. Here's the next set of three, or five rather. We talked Genesis chapter one with five verses. Now we're going to go to and God's word and creative elements about that. We see what he's laying down in with his words, a statement here to, to uh, um, uh, Adam. And now we come to this next set of three in Genesis chapter three, the next set of five, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, we're in Genesis chapter three, and the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he said to the woman, did God actually say? He questions the word of God. His first attack is against the words of God. That's the very first thing that takes place. Words create, words can destroy. And so his very first thing is to challenge the words of God. Did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the twist in the phrase there. Listen, listen to me. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course he didn't. He didn't say you couldn't eat of any tree. In fact, he said the reverse, right? You can eat of every tree, just not one. And so he starts to this process. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She counters it. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Are you tracking what's going on here? Are you paying attention? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's true. She doesn't name it. And there are some that postulate that, that the fault is Adam. And I know, ladies, you're going to like that part. Okay, Adam screwed up. He didn't tell her the name. He just said, hey, that tree over there, don't touch it. You know, don't, don't, don't touch it. You know how we might say that? And so she may have had a misunderstanding of what it was, that we shouldn't touch it all. He doesn't name it. So there's some people that want to say that it was Adam's fault, and it very well could have been. He didn't communicate effectively on this. So you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die, which is not true. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Some Jewish authors say and believe or, or wrote from years past that, that he gave her a little nudge to touch the tree. See, you didn't die. And so if that's wrong, then maybe the rest of it's wrong too. You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, 
knowing good and evil. That your eyes will be open. Words create. Now these very words are being twisted, distorted, to destroy and bring rebellion. There was a video that I wanted to show you. It's about three minutes long or so. It's by a woman named Noelle uh, Mira, I think it is, or Mira. You can find her on the web. It's a Christian uh, writer. And she's speaking about words and the power of words. And there was some conversation in our preparations anyways that she's using so many big words that I might have to break it down for you. So this makes it a lot easier, okay? What she's discussing is some of the current political movements. Um, specifically, she references wokeism, or being woke, uh, as a spiritual battle and not a political one. And so whatever I'm saying here, don't take this in a political phrase, but, but there's a spiritual underneath of this. She talks about the roots of where this comes. It's not really a new idea. It's an old one that's rooted back in a guy named Karl Marx who was influenced by a philosopher named Hegel. And um, what Hegel did is he created something called the dialectic. And the dialectic was, I'm going to really butcher this a bit, but I'll give you some basic things of it. Basically, there's the oppressed and the oppressors. And, and we bring conflict. We point out the contradictions and the problems with this. And when we point that out, there's revolution. And when there's revolution, then we destroy everything that is. And we start with something fresh, but it's better than where we were starting at. And this is where progressivism or progression and the idea of progress or, or progressive thinking, as it's now worded in some of the political terminology and political ter- and philosophical terminology comes from, that we are progressing towards a greater and brighter future. But what this means from a Marxist viewpoint, wokeism, some of these other points, is we need to, though, highlight the fact that there's oppressed and oppressor and that there's contradictions, and then, and, then, and then we cause a revolution that wipes out everything it is, and then eventually we continue to make new and better things until we reach utopia. That's actually the concept that we reach utopia. And part of the method of this is that we, we distort or change or rework words and languages, because if we can do that, then we can gain control, or confusion at least, and that can further the cause of what we're trying to do in these contradictions and creating this this revolution, this process going on. For example, can we now anymore in this society define what a woman is or what a man is? Not if you're not biblically based anymore for the most part. Is silence violence? Collateral damage, we're told. Collateral damage. This means that innocent people were killed, but we use collateral damage. Is, is the freedom of choice the overarching issue or is the significance of life? has a more significant element. If it's the death penalty, then we say, no, if there's even a chance that one innocent life is executed, that is wrong. We should eliminate the death penalty. And perhaps we should. Or that's not the point of the conversation. But when it comes to the issue of, of abortion and, and things of that nature, choice, where's that at? An undocumented immigrant or illegal alien. Illegal alien is an accurate term. Uh, undocumented immigrant makes it seem like someone didn't check off some papers before they did whatever they're supposed to go. January 6th, was it an insurrection? Was it a riot? Or was it an exuberant protest? Now, I've thrown enough in there, hopefully, that whether you're to the left or to the right, that you're upset with me at this point in time, and that's all right. The point I want to draw your attention to is that lures and language is being thrown at you all the time, and a distortion of those that are practically, and I'll use the term Orwellian, which goes back to George Orwell's 1984, where he wrote about a dystopian society. You have a utopian society, which allegedly we're all progressing towards and eventually reaching for and will occur by our own efforts in mankind, or a dystopian. Here's an interesting thing on those words. 
Dystopia means bad place. So you would think utopia means good place. Utopia was written by a guy named Thomas More back in the 1500s. It's actually a book he wrote, a pamphlet he wrote. And utopia in Greek actually means no place. No place. But another word that's pronounced the same, utopia, only with an E in front, E-U, that one actually means good place. And so it's thought that over time people just kept using the wrong words and utopia, the way we see it today, U-T-O-P-I-A, has come to mean good place. But it doesn't. It means no place. I just find that ironic because that's what allegedly all our progressive, man-made, humanistic things are striving for is utopia. And in our heads, we're thinking, it's E-U, it's the good place. But the way we're spelling it and the way we're applying it and the reality of the truth is if it's being done by our own means and ends, it is no place. So God creates by his word. Lucifer comes along. We'll talk about him some more at another time. He comes along and uses words to twist and to change and to cause um, uh, the falling out of God and man. And he's successful. Words can create. Words can destroy. Satan attacks the very word of God because he knows that the very word of God, properly understood, brings life. And as for this utopia, we already had it and lost it. We keep thinking through all our means, whether it's republicanism or democratism or democracy or dictatorship or communism or whatever the case is, that somehow we'll create this utopian society that we're progressing forward. And, and we know, if you know anything about history, that history is a cycle of rising and falling, rising and falling, and not necessarily getting better. The state of man, now our condition may change. We have, we have dishwashers today. That alone is just worth all sorts of revolutions. Okay, we have, we have microwave ovens. That's just fantastic. We have cell phones. Jury's still out on that one, all right? So certain aspects have changed, but the condition of man. Do you know that we used to have kids that would go to school and bring their guns to school for the gun club, and nobody had mass murders. Now we're reading about it every other day. Is man getting better? He's not. We may improve certain conditions, but the reality is there was only one utopia, and that was in the garden, and that was when man was in relationship with God, and words were for creation and for encouragement and relationship and not for destruction. Satan comes along and trashes that out, and that's the critical, pinnacle aspect of what's happening in the book of Genesis. And if that's where it would be left, then this would be a sad conversation indeed. But that's not where it's left. I don't know about you, I just get a little chill. My hairs all rise on that one. There's, there's just all of attention right now. Because that's not where it was left. This is an origin story, but remember we said that the book of Genesis <clears throat> is, is really a story. It's, it's salvation history. It's the history of the salvation of mankind. And our spoken word person last week said that it didn't stop there. It wasn't the blackout of the curtain. God provides a promise, and that promise is going to be Jesus Christ. It's going to be God in the flesh. I am so glad that you are here in the flesh, in person. Because that's how church is supposed to be. 
I understand the live stream, and I understand it's a blessing, and, I, and it's great, and I love to tap into it when I'm out of town as well too. But church was meant to be next to each other. We were meant to hear each other's flat notes while singing. We were meant to smell the stink of the person or the fragrance of the person next to us. We were meant to shake a hand or hold someone for a moment of time. We were meant to see one another shed a tear or have a shout of joy. We were meant to be together. I'm really sorry for second service because they're not going to get any of this. I'm not saying they won't understand it. I'm saying that I don't know that I can pull this in again. So this is for you. And so we're gathered. And we are individuals who may have all come from different circumstances and situations where we've fallen or failed and we know our shortcomings, but God brings grace because even though God spoke creatively and and Satan distorted that in us, God wouldn't let it lie. And the rest of the Bible is all about that. But here's the thing I want to kind of draw your attention to in these moments of time that really captures me. You've got Genesis, and it says, in the beginning... And then God spoke this word, and suddenly everything's created, right? You got that part, right? Satan distorted all that stuff and misunderstandings, and language gets screwed up, and all the meanings of that. And so the first five verses were Genesis chapter 1. The next five were Genesis chapter 3. But the next five, and the final word for our conversation here today, is found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And some of you know this passage, and so you're way ahead of me on this already. But for those of you who don't, let me, let me read it to you here and see if you notice there's a connecting point. I want you to understand this. So there's the Old Testament and there's 400 years of silence. And then the next thing that's spoken in is this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning. Haven't we heard that phrase before somewhere? It's Genesis. If it hadn't been written by by John and named after him as a gospel, it would be called Genesis Part 2. Or Part 2, if you're French, okay? It's the same thing as taking us right back. That's very, very important. We've got in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. Now we have this silence. The next thing we have is in the beginning. What's coming next? In the beginning was the Word. They're not talking about the beginning of the New Testament. They're taking us back to the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the word, the very word that God uses to create all of these things. And then it says the word was with God. Well, wait a minute. Something's going on here with this word because this word has a personality. This word is is unique. The rabbis often refer to God, especially in his more personal aspects, as the word. In fact, one thing in Exodus chapter 19, 17 says, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They would have translated as Jesus brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. And so to the, to the Jewish people, the idea of the word was something that was, that was equated with God. Greek philosophers saw the logos, or the word, as the power that set the world in perfect order and kept it going in perfect order. The ultimate reason that kept everything in place and together. And so with this opening line, what John sang to both the Jews and the Greeks for centuries, you've been talking, thinking, and writing about the word. Now I'm going to tell you who he is. That there's this being known as the word. That the being is God because he's eternal in the beginning. That the being is God because he's plainly called God. The word was God. At the same time, this being doesn't encompass all that God is. God the Father is a distinct person from the Word because it says that the Word was with God. 
This is some of the root aspects of, of what we find of the theology of what's called the Trinity. But for our purposes here today, I just want you to capture for a moment the sweep, the span of history and time of, of that opening um, God saying and using a word that, that creates and, and that word is, is Jesus that creates everything that is. Jesus is the one that is the creative power behind all that aspect. But it also says that the spirit hovered over the waters at the same time. I'm not going to go off on the Trinity on you right now, but it's there, okay? Okay? It's there. And then when we come here, after the fall, after the distortion of God's words after the destruction that was wrought in by our enemy. We have a new beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made and in him was life the very life he's the language there says that he is he is that which sustains all life christ by his very nature sustains gives life and sustains all life and the life was the light of men and then this last part here the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the healing, the restoration, the antithesis. You can say whatever you want to say in regards to it. But this is basically that which resolves out the fall of man. This morning, I want you to understand the power of words. I want you to understand that words are being used today in our society to twist, to turn, to deceive, to get us lost. I want you to be sensitive to that. I try to teach my sons when we were younger, when they were, when we were all were younger, um, that, that, that things like product placement. And so when we watch a movie and, 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 and uh, um, Tony Stark sits down on the, after the podium and opens up a Burger King and starts to eat a hamburger, I, I, see, they're trying to place, they're trying to sell you something, guys. And so they've got tuned. And so every once in a while, we'll watch a movie and something will pop out with a, a can of Coke or something strategically placed and they'll say, product placement. I said, yeah, they're trying to sell you something. What I want you to understand today is there's a whole grouping of people. They're Republicans, they're Democrats. They're good guys and some of them are bad guys. Actually, a lot of them are bad guys. It's a mix of people and they're all trying to phrase things in a way to sell you something. And if you are not rooted in Scripture and a biblical understanding of what truth is, You'll fall for it. It sounds reasonable. It makes sense. The first thing that Lucifer's saying to, to uh, um, Eve is, he doesn't want you to be what you could be. You need to wake up. He doesn't want your eyes opened. He's oppressing you. You're the oppressed. He's the oppressor. You need to rebel against that. We can blame Adam for it. We can blame her lack of real depth and understanding of the issues. We can go wherever we want to go. But the reality is God created with the word. Satan comes along and uses those same words to twist and distort and play this oppressed, oppressive issue out, saying you could have a better life. 
utopia. Some of these whacked out preachers say, your best life now and sees everything now and it's all this prosperity garbage, to use the French term. Doesn't leave, they all tank. We lost utopia in the garden. What God's word created. But God, it's salvation history. He comes back and the presence of Jesus Christ is the word of God. And faith in him, leaning into the understanding of that, leads us eventually to utopia with an E in front, the good place, and not the utopia that mankind's being called to. Today's just the beginning. But as you chew on this, there's a song, I don't know if they gave you words for it or if you know the song, and if there's a point in time, you don't have to, but if there's a point in time you want to join on it, you can. But it's just an affirmation of our faith in both the word of God, which Satan first comes to try to attack, as well as the word that is God. So Father, I pray this morning as we draw this time to a conclusion that our hearts and minds would be oriented to you just to hear your voice and make an affirmation of our own to hold to a biblical worldview as we move forward in life. In Jesus' name.
Created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Let there be light. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. You're going to have a lot of words thrown at you this week. Some are just going to be honest ones. Some are going to be ones that are bent to, to destroy and to twist. Some of them will be the words that you utter. Understand the power of those words create or to destroy. Realize the significance of these words. Let these words shape your thinking and filter your actions. Next week we're going to address probably the most significant concept slash idea that, that was ever written in all of history and absolutely affects how we think uh, of ourselves and the world around us as we continue on in origin stories. Father, we come before you and I pray your grace, your direction that you continue to guide us and let us be very conscious, I pray, of our speech and of our thinking as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.